This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. My guest today has been a successful stand-up comic actor and writer on TV shows like Modern Family, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Mad Men, starring in movies like Charlie Wilson's War and White Oleander. She's had the privilege of doing The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, and Jimmy Fallon, and she's had her own HBO special. Coming up, a woman who has been lucky enough to enjoy a lifetime of laughter, the clever, courageous comedian, Kathy Ladman. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la. la wow, that makes me sound like I'm an explorer or something. I, I, I actually very... like that. You know, yeah. I like that. Explore into the new world of comedy because really you came along in the 80s and that was Boomtown. I mean, there yeah. was. Certainly comedy before us, but boy, yes. wasn't that an interesting time to be on the scene. Did you start in New York? I started in New York, yes, in 1981, and it was a great time to come up. By the way, I, I did The Tonight Show with three hosts, Johnny, Jay, and Jimmy, all with the Jays. I saw those last appearances, and I'm, I'm so proud to see the fact that you were invited to do the show at this stage in a stand-up career it's a, it's a unique invitation. It is a unique invitation for someone who's not a big, giant, famous person. We go for quality here, not fame. But what you're saying is it's not a common invitation for someone who's not doing constantly movies and TV to be invited at this point in my career. And not only are you doing great stand-up, but it seems to have significance now. You're shining a light on the reality of parts of your life that maybe in the beginning you were just sort of fixated on, can I get that laugh? Yeah, the, watching those first few appearances on The Tonight Show was a little uncomfortable for me because I think I, I was a relatively young comic. You know, I, I think I'd only been doing stand-up for like eight years when I first did The Tonight Show. And that's like, I mean, I've been doing it for over 42 years now. I mean, I hope I've changed. If I've not, that's another podcast. Do you remember the raw emotions of the first appearance? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, well, the first time I was bumped. I was supposed to go on with Johnny, and I was bumped. Oh, God, that was really, like, there was so much adrenaline leading up to with no release. until And then I cried later just to have a release. And then very soon after, I was asked to do it with Jay that time. What was good about having my first shot with Jay was that... I knew him, I was comfortable with him, and I did panel, you know, right away, which was great. The first two times I did it with Jay, I did my set and I did panel. And then they wanted me to do it with Johnny, and I said, you know, I don't want to not do panel. I didn't want to go backwards. And then they cleared it with me to do panel with Johnny. So it wasn't one of those, you know, I got the AOK -okay sign from Johnny and walked over. It was, pre, it was predetermined that I was going to do that. That's my real comfort zone is being is sitting down and being conversational with somebody not that I don't like doing stand-up I love I love doing stand-up and I and I really love doing stand-up on late night I just love the whole exercise of it my first appearance when I when I finally got on was was exhilarating and then my second appearance this is how naive I was I thought well this is going to be even better and I didn't realize that there was nothing that could compare to my first time. It was not possible. And
And it was a little bit of an out-of-body experience, and I did not have a good time. Then I spoke to Jay's wife after, after the show. I said, God, that felt weird. She goes, well, I think it was even better than your first time. So I was not experiencing what I was exuding, which was unfortunate that I missed it on an, on a, on an emotional and professional level. But I got through it. it. It was a strange experience. You and I were on around the same time because I remember there being an article in the LA Times that they were talking to Jim McCauley, who was the... Yes, we were both on the, in that article. That's right. It talked about new comics coming up, and there was a picture of you and I in a profile. And that's sort of how I be became more aware of you, was that we were kind of running at the same moment. Were you doing a solo show at the time and you had your bunk bed? And Oh, yeah. That was a, th a three-man show called The Bunk Bed Brothers. But here's what's funny. My mom and dad watch, and my mom, I did not go to panel. But the show had run a little bit long, and like the woman that dressed up chickens talked a little too long. And so I wasn't really an option. They said to me right behind the curtain, hey, there's not going to be any panel. So at least my anxiety was not like, oh, I just got rejected. But... But my mom says to me after, how come you didn't go to the bench? Like it was a football game. The bench, right, exactly. You know, like, like, oh, I got to go sit there right. you know, and wind down from it or something. <laughs> For comics, it was a big deal to go to panel. When I did it a few times and had done it with Jay, what's funny is I didn't take it for granted Normally, there was a tradition to go to a club the night before and just run it hard. If you could go to two clubs, even better. But you had to do it like you were on television. You couldn't play the room and you couldn't go, okay, I'm going to save this. You had to do that material and that length of time because you didn't want to go long. You didn't want to forget anything. <laughs> the first time that I didn't go the night before, I was having a party that was already scheduled and I got this sort of last minute call. Can you do it? I think it was uh, Labor Day or something. So nothing was normal about it because it wasn't the normal 5.30 time they record. It was like at three o'clock and they had brought in an audience from somewhere else. Anyway, I decided to finish hosting the party I was throwing and not go do the set. And that next day when I did it, I wasn't quite as confident. And just as I was going out, they said to me, oh, hey, do me a favor. We need to pull a little bit out because of time. Can you take out this joke? Ooh, right before you went out, huh? Right before I went out. And I said, yes. Jesus. I know. They said, can you take the evaporated milk joke out? And I go, okay. And then <laughs> I'm telling you, I got out there and I was doing okay. And right. But all I was thinking about was taking that joke out. And so oh, when boy. I got to it, I took it out. Yeah. And I had no idea what the connective tissue was next. It was like the train derailed at that second. And and for what, five seconds? I don't know. But the, Right, but it probably felt like... A lifetime. And I didn't know what to say when I forgot. So I just stared at the audience. And I said, hey, uh, have you ever been in the middle of your set on The Tonight Show and completely forgotten what you're going to do? <laughs> That's great. They laughed. And yet I still didn't know what to say. Right. There was this moment where I was like, oh, no. And then, like, meet Mr. Lincoln, like the Disney automatron. I, I just was like, nah, and then I went, by. Anyway, they were watching the last part of it because it looked like I could implode. Like, like the way I booted back up was, was hilarious. Wow. Did you, I mean, obviously you must have watched it. I'll tell you what, I couldn't. For weeks and weeks, I couldn't watch it. But what's funny is, is that when I went over and sat down, 
Jay goes, ah, you know, nothing. It's a, it's a blip. It's a second. And I really felt <laughs> crestfallen that not only did I take it for granted, but maybe I disappointed him. Maybe I'd never be on The Tonight Show. Like, imagine being on the panel just watching your career melt. I was subsequently back later and stuff. But at the time, you think, well... I just shot myself in the foot on television. We we put so much import on, on that one shot or any one shot. And, uh, you know, there was one time when I was supposed to do the Tonight Show. It was, it was Memorial Day weekend, not Labor Day. It was Memorial Day weekend. And I was supposed to do the Tonight Show the next night. We were driving back from Vegas and it took us eight hours to get back. And I was supposed to run my set at the Improv the night before and I didn't have time and it went fine. I did not have uh, a bad experience, but it was interesting in that I found that certain superstitions didn't hold. It was a good lesson for me. It's like, if I do something differently, it's okay. You know, you get into this, uh, at least I do. And I think a lot of us do get into this thing where I do it this way and this works. So I better keep doing it this way. And it's not necessarily the case. I mean, Almost always when I do The Tonight Show, when I've done The Tonight Show, my set bombs in the clubs. It just does not do well. And this last one I did, which was in January, I ran my set here and it bombed. And I thought, great, this is going to go really well. Jimmy Brogan and I would go around and accompany each other when we were doing The Tonight Show and and when we were running our sets and we'd say, we'd congratulate each other when we bombed. That's fantastic. You know, it's going to be so great on The Tonight Show. That, that it bombed so badly here. And then I was in New York, and they wanted me to run it the night before in New York. This was my first late-night show, actually, since the very last Dick Cavett show that I did. I did the, his final show. But I ran it at the Comedy Cellar, and it killed. And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. And then I thought, well, this is just superstitious. It's just superstitious. And, and I, I find that there's a lot of superstition in my creative journey that I like to dispel when I can, because I just don't think it, it, it's true. I don't think it's the truth. Well, we do build narratives. And I remember hearing people always say, you have to have so many jokes per minute. Before that, I didn't even, I never even thought about what I was doing. When I told the story, the funny parts were funny. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get on these shows because with a stopwatch, I was like, I haven't, nobody's laughed for 30 seconds. But it's so dumb. It is. The styles and everyone's so different. I love the era though. I love the era when all the people you were working with at the improv and places were each getting a shot. The stakes were somewhat high because it was leading to sitcom characters and leading to other opportunities. Uh, I felt like I was on the tail end of when Johnny's OK symbol really launched you like you were in the space program. There were so many places that comedy was starting to surface that that one showcase was no longer, everybody wasn't tuned in. And it was kind of in the in-between era because it was, if you didn't watch it that night, you didn't get to see it the next day the, the way somebody can now. You literally can click and send it out the next day to everybody in the world. You had to call everybody you knew and say, it's tonight, it's not. And if you get bumped, you got to call them all back with that embarrassing, yeah, I got bumped. And then when it did air, then it would have been 9, 9 p.m. here, I would the, the calls would start coming in from the East Coast. 
So yeah, it was a very different time. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, I remember I moved to LA in 85 and as did Roseanne, I went to her first Tonight Show, Karen Haber and I, we were, you know, colleagues of hers at the comedy store and we went there to watch her first shot and it was, it was meteoric. It was amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she was, it was just everything aligned at the right time. She had come from Denver. I remember I used to play the comedy works in Denver. Roseanne was doing great there and she got this chance to go West and to audition for Mitzi Shore at the Comedy Store and to do The Tonight Show. And we all watched that. Not only was the domestic goddess part born, you could just, you could smell opportunities and money. There were a few people that had that kind of set. Drew Carey had a set like that where you go, oh my, he really hit it out of the park, you know? And at that time, Roseanne, for a female comic, to get that kind of heat that fast. I mean, I remember Elaine Boozler prior, and I had seen her on a few shows. But it, boy, it seemed like Roseanne had the same kind of energy that Stephen Wright had coming off it where Johnny was just lit up. So tell me about that, being there with her and witnessing that. I mean, you were contemporaries and you were supporting because you were part of the girls of the comedy store. I had a nice introduction. I moved to LA with my then boyfriend, uh, Steve Middleman, who was an improv act from New York, and I guess he played the improv act here, but he passed auditions at the Comedy Store, and he set up an audition for me at the Comedy Store. And I did very well. I had a really great audition, and I walked off stage past Mitzi's table, and she goes, oh, you're great. You can be a regular. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's a big deal to hear that. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. And I worked when I wasn't on the road, which I started to do not long after I moved to L.A., I worked like six nights out of the week at the comedy store. And the only reason I didn't work seven is because I made myself take one night off. Wow. And it was great. I was very lucky. Flexing your muscle in comedy that frequently is a necessity to success. It is. And I don't do it as much now. I miss that regenerative experience. Now it's, it's my life is not as singularly focused as it was back then. I was a comic. That's what I was. I did my sets. I, I recorded them. I listened to them. I took notes. I made appropriate edits and changes. I did and, and rinse and repeat. And that's what I did. And now my life is so much more diversified. I, I don't have the time to do that anymore. Well, nobody, nobody does. Even the people who want to do that, there are so many more people on the playing field. I remember first moving from Nebraska to LA and, you know, there was a part we're leaving out here, which you didn't have to do at the comedy store once you were approved, but it was the calling in at these and saying when you were available and... No, I'd have to do that. Well, we'd have to do it at both of these places or in any little small place and they would go, how do I get on at Igby's? I need a few minutes. How do I get on at... You know, the ice house and you would wait for months, weeks, sometimes, and you would get a slot. It would be like one in the morning and you go, okay, do I nap that day or do I muscle through? Like all of your energy was around, okay, am I give, leaving enough time to park my car? I remember running into the improv sometimes with almost my car on the curbside willing to get a ticket for fear that if I didn't get there, they'd never give me a spot again. I mean, we lived under this umbrella of fear so much, which is unfortunate. I tell you, when you bring up Igby's, it's, that was my favorite place because I did not feel that at Igby's. There was a very familial feeling at Igby's. Easy parking. 
very friendly right from the get-go. They greeted you. They made you feel at home. In fact, that's where Macaulay saw me when I ultimately got The Tonight Show. I don't remember where Jim Macaulay saw me. I want to say that it was the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach. But he paid attention to me for a while without me knowing. (laughs) Right. Same here. Yes. And I always thought, why is he going to stay? Is he going to watch me? Is he watching somebody else? Does, you know, and I just always felt like, well, maybe, maybe I'm not his cup of tea, whatever. And then suddenly one day he just decided you're ready, you know? (laughs) Well, I was very happy to have been put off that long because I was more than ready to do it. And I think when you're doing something that has such gravitas like The Tonight Show, I think it's good to be more than ready. I think there were lots of young comics who got a little break and didn't really have a headline set or didn't or weren't ready for a sitcom. They might have had a, a good six or seven minutes, and so they, they got a showcase and they shined. And I would say a place like Star Search would do that. They would put a person on for two minutes and the next week, two minutes. And, you know, at the end of a good run of that, maybe they burnt 10 minutes worth of material after five appearances and they couldn't necessarily handle an hour on the road if they didn't have that in advance of that. It reminds me, you know, when we did The Tonight Show, we had five minutes and I used to time out my set, my bombing set in the clubs to time out four minutes and 15 seconds. That was the, that was the sweet spot. And that worked. And I mean, if it was four minutes, it was fine. But 4.15 was the most I would do. When you look at somebody like, let's say, David Brenner, who did like 150 Tonight Shows or something like that, they, at that point, the Tonight Show was a 90-minute show. They were doing like seven, eight-minute sets. I mean, imagine how, how much material they burned so quickly. Oh, it was unbelievable. Now, we've had the occasion to salute Johnny Carson, and this is this was really great. Uh, I guess now it's coming a couple of years ago that we did the salute to Johnny uh, in Jamestown, New York, at the Reg Lanay Center. They were doing a show to inaugurate Johnny's immersive exhibit. So a number of us came together with other folks that had done The Tonight Show, and Jeff Satsing, who is Johnny's nephew, helped to produce this fantastic reunion of folks. Yeah, Jay Johnson, the ventriloquist, Lance Burton, the magician. And I love that you were Lance's assistant. Oh, God, that was so fun. Oh, my gosh. He had he floated you in front of the audience. Yes. And you knew nothing, right? You didn't have any idea? No, I didn't know anything. I was like, he, you know, he was whispering to me, don't now, don't move, <laughs> don't move. And I was like, oh, okay, you know. It did illuminate how important Johnny was to so many careers, not just those of us that were together for that reunion, but it made a significant difference, not so much that you made a million dollars, but the fact that you got the approval, the borrowed equity of going to the next thing and saying, as seen on Johnny Carson, that was like everything. Yeah, it was like, you know, being a piece of that history was really so gratifying to know that you had achieved that. It was, a, it was a marker. And then, of course, like the carrot and the stick, it just keeps moving. And then now what's next? What's next? What's next? Yeah, and you wanted David Letterman? I never did Letterman, which I really wanted to do because I wanted to do a New York show. And I was the first late night show I ever did was Dick Cavett's last show for ABC in New York. And I was, I was on the show with, it was Richard Belzer, Carol Liefer and myself, and I was the only one who did a set, and it was a little, it was a little nerve-wracking, and it was not a great setup physically for a comic. I mean, the audience was a 
was right in front of me and above me. It was more like a sitcom audience setup. Johnny's studio was the best, the way it was set up physically. And they buried that show at like 2.30 in the morning. But it was like how I got my feet wet. And it was exciting, but I really wanted to do Letterman because it was great theater and it was a New York crowd. And then I got to do Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show and have that New York crowd, which was great. My first appearance was something called Thick of the Night, which was a the Alan Thick show. Oh, yes. And I had flown out from Nebraska. And then the next was Merv Griffin's show, which was very funny because I had been sending videotapes to who, I don't even know who they were. I'd find out who the booker was and I would mail them up. And i collect these rejection letters. And they were polite-ish, but the Merv Griffin one was like, I don't think there's ever going to be a time where people are going to have the same sense of humor as you. It was pretty, it was pretty heavy duty. So I, when I moved to LA, I came with my Merv Griffin rejection letter, but I was playing in Hermosa Beach and I remember the guy came to see the show and he loved, the audience loved it. And he came right backstage and he said, we had a fallout. I'd like you to be on the show tomorrow and do exactly what you did here. And just come over and meet with the producer and then you'll be on. So be sure you have your suit and everything. And I just couldn't believe, I didn't want to tell him, hey, I think you might've written the letter. You know what I mean? Like, I just was like, I was like, I'm not going to let anybody know. And when I got there, Paul Reiser was a celebrity guest on the show because he was doing the movie Aliens. And he was he was a movie star, right? He had done Diner, he had done a few things, and and it put me so at ease because he and his wife had met me backstage at Comedy Magic, and he had passed by and said, "Oh, that guy's great." But prior to that moment of Paul saying that, I went there confident that if I do what I did last night, and I go into the producer's office, and he says to me, "Okay, do your act for me at the desk, do it to him." He wasn't there. And I start telling jokes to one man at a desk, which is just brutal. And a lot of my comments were, you're looking at me like I'm the last pick of gym class. And they were parts of the jokes that you would say to an audience. But he thought he thought I was saying to them personally, he go, no, no, don't apologize. Just do your act. Right, <laughs> he didn't realize. Yes. And I would go, no, but this this is my act. And he, go, well, you, he goes, well, you can't do that. He literally didn't approve any of the jokes. Oh my God. So what happened? So he goes, what else do you got? And I reached out. I had this like satchel that had some magic tricks in it. Like, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I pulled out these hangers that linked and things. They, you know, they were tricks, not jokes. And he goes, yeah, that, okay, you can do that. You know? And I was like, oh, so it wasn't like the normal. <laughs> It was like a garage sale comedy moment. These people, they just don't get it. You know what I think it is? I really think that a lot of this business is run on fear. Fear of, I'm afraid to lose my job, so I don't want to approve this because someone might think that I don't know what I'm doing and then I'll lose my job. It's not a good way to run a creative business. You have to be able to believe in your choices and take chances. And now you're talking about something that's really valuable as an actress, making those choices. When you do a character role, you have to be kind of fearless when you walk into an audition and you're making choices. Absolutely, you do. And so much of what we experience in this business is is rejection. I think it's a human nature to do what you can to do to, to avoid rejection, but that's not really how to approach 
a creative endeavor. You don't want to take the safe road. We're seeking approval, and you play the guessing game of what is it they want. Exactly. And they don't know what they want a lot of the time. They don't. <laughs> no, yeah. They don't. So a lot of time they're just trying to save their own asses. One of the weirdest auditions, and I don't know, I think you lived down in the Santa Monica area, so you probably didn't have the same issue, but I lived completely across town in Glendale. And when you had an audition and you had to go against traffic, Santa Monica, it was, your day was spent. First of all, I lived in West Hollywood for the first four and a half years. And remember when you had an audition, first of all, you had to go drive to pick up the sides. You had to go pick up the sides. And the sides, for the listener, the sides is a couple of pages, literally, that these are what you're going to read, right? They were a little snippet out of the script. So I had to drive from West Hollywood to Universal City in rush hour traffic because it's always the end of the day when you get the audition, pick up these pieces of paper. It was before they started faxing them to us and then work on them and then drive again the next day to go to do the actual audition. And of course, the landscape is completely changed now with self-tapes. And you used to have to park your car, put money in the meter, and then sit in that waiting room panicking the meter was going to run out. And then you would run out and plug the meter again just before. And then you'd run in and go, that is good tasting tuna. And then you'd run out. <laughs> Right. And then you'd go, ah, oh, I could have done it. And then you drive home the whole time saying it different ways. That's good tasting tuna. That is good tasting tuna. I know, the, the old audition in the car thing, yes. So I had a, a crosstown Santa Monica audition, and it, I got there, and there's seven or eight people. This was a group one where they called you in all together, a bunch of people, and you stood in the line, and you said your name. And then after everybody had slated, that's what they call it when you stay your name and your agency or something. This was a running in place audition where everyone just pretended to be running and the camera just moved along. And I, I think to myself, what in the world are we auditioning for? We're standing in a room pretending to run. They could pick any one of us or anybody for that matter. And I just kept thinking, I, I just spent two hours getting over here and doing all this. So then I'm doing this running at the camera and then we leave and we're all kind of shrugging. Well, what was that? And on the way home, I get a call from the agent. Hey, you got a call back. I go, I got a call back for what? He goes, now they need to show, see if you can really run. I go, what? So I literally have to go the next day, drive down there. And when I get there, I think this was about, I don't know, second in Santa Monica or fifth in Santa Monica, the same casting offices. And they said, you don't have to go in this time. Just park at the gas station. There's a Union 76 right there. Call them when you're there. And then you're going to get out of your car and you're going to run down the block and they'll look out the window and watch you <laughs> oh my God. to see if you can run. And I go, what? I don't have to sign in or anything? They go, no, no, that's fine. You're, you're in the final two people. They just want to know if you can run. So I call that number. I get out of my car. The person says to me, yeah, do me a favor. Cross the street. And then you're going to start running. And when you turn the corner, just pretend like there's, you know, a lion chasing you or something. Like, we want to see that you're afraid. And I think, what, is this a prank on me? Like, I don't know. And that was right by a Whole Foods. So oh, I know. Where, yes, yes. I know exactly where it is. Yes. I came running around that corner like I was going to be gunned down. And the people coming out of the Whole Foods, like, all reversed. Like, what's around the corner, right? So it was really hilarious because as soon as I got down the block a little ways, my phone rings. Okay, you're good. And and I and I got back in my car and went home. I get home and I think, okay, 
I'm really out of show business. And I get the part. Commercials are like an immediate look, a 30-second thing generally. So the audience has to immediately hook into you. It was it was really funny to me. And then ending part to that was they I get the call, do you mind running in your boxer shorts? For the spot, like I had been woken up in the middle of the night and I had to run out of the house. I was a grown man, but it was sort of like trying something new gives people fear or something. So I was supposed to go into this house upstairs and there was an old couple and I was supposed to say, I heard something scary or something. So it was kind of like a boyish type type of thing. So we did the first thing. And then I said to the director on the side, I said, hey, can I get into bed with them? And he said, oh my God, you got to do that. Don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. So I, I get to the edge of the bed and I go, I'm, I heard a scary noise. And then I climb over the woman and I pull, and I get in between this old couple and I pull the covers up and he shot the whole thing. The look on their faces. Oh my God, it must've been priceless. Well, that's the one they used for the spot. Of course. But they were both like, what in the world is this dude doing? That's so funny. You know, back to aliens, I had heard that, you know, when the alien shoots out of John Hurt's abdomen. They didn't tell the actors that that was going to happen because Ridley Scott wanted to get a real genuine shock of everybody around the table. So I did Friday Night Lights here in Austin and I played a detective role that was just a guest role and it ended up reoccurring uh, because the storyline did. And I, I overheard the director say to one actor in the interrogation room, I want you to take this outside. I want this scene to end in the parking lot. Then he told the dad, who was playing another police chief, he said, whatever you do, don't let that kid leave that room. Now, neither of them heard the other person's direction. I happened to hear both of them, and I thought to myself, well, what is going to happen when we start doing this, right? And they were both great, and they were regulars, and it was real conflict, and the way they shot Friday Night Lights was very loose. The cameramen were in different places. You didn't block the cameras. They would be behind doors and under tables and all kinds of great points of view. And I remember that kid muscling himself out of the room, and we followed, and I followed them, and we went down the hallway, and we were in a real police station passing other detectives that were real people looking their heads out. What's the chaos? You know, like all of that ends up in the show and then they end up on the parking lot and they finish. And it was great direction for a reality, right? It gives you a real documentary feeling. Yeah. Cool. I love that show. For you being a writer and an actress and a comic, which you're very good at all of those things. What sparks each part for you in terms of when you're writing in your creative process as a writer, Where is the magic where you really get jazzed up as a writer? Writing is my least favorite thing to do. It's the thing that scares me more than anything, but it's completely necessary because I have to create material. When I have an idea, I use an app called Evernote on my phone that also I buy the package that synchronizes with my computer so I can update it on my computer and then I can go update, change it on my phone and they will synchronize between platforms. And so if I have an idea, I put it on that. And then what I like to do is go back to those notes and then edit. First drafts terrify me, absolutely terrify me. You know, it's so funny. I never had confidence in myself as a kid creatively. I always preferred math and science because they were exact or as as exact as you can get at that level anyway. There was one answer. I knew when I had the right answer. But for anything interpretive, 
it was terrifying for me and I never felt like I was good enough. And I got that message growing up from my parents that I was never good enough. And it was scary. And then here I choose this to do for life's work. And you talk about this in your one woman show. You have a one woman show called, Does This Show Make Me Look Fat? A year and a half ago, I was coming into Los Angeles. And, you know, I often, if I have one night free, I'll often see what's in small theater or see something original. And I just lucked out in your show was happening. I came from the airport to this small theater on Pico, I want to say. On Pico, yes. The Pico Playhouse, yeah. And walked in there and saw uh, an audience. And I think it was early in the development of the show. Oh, God. It was like, you you may have seen the first performance or the second performance. I can't remember what night it was. Well, it was great. It was great storytelling. It was a vulnerable piece. When you talk about the difference between math and science and the arts, math and science is baking. The ingredients are uh, specific. The time that you cook it is specific. And the pie comes out this way. And this is definitely much more scratch cooking. So I remember, one, enjoying it because I like genuine theater. I like a little pathos with my comedy personally, but that's just my taste because I come from storytelling. And to me, I've seen comics who say, I have a one-man show, and I go to it and I go, that's your headline set. You're telling jokes over a period of time, and then you say thank you, good night. But there's not really a theatrical element to it. It's entertaining. It's fine. You're doing a concert. I get it. But I really feel like in something that's more of a memoir in your situation, there is so much depth when a person reflects on their parents and their upbringing, and you can see, I like the angst is real. <laughs> When you name the names of the bullies that you went to school with, it's different when you're making up a name. You can go, that's a fake name. In fact, do you mention, is Twiggy one of the people that you mentioned was... Twiggy is is one of the icons that I mentioned. The show is about having an eating disorder, anorexia, and recovering. Seeing Twiggy and other of these models in that time period, early 60s, was highly influential in my wanting to control that part of my life. And the point was and is that my my life was very out of control. And I chose that as a means to control my life. It wasn't wasn't that I really wanted to be skinny. It's that I really wanted to be in control of something. And that to me was was the most tangible thing that I could grab onto. But I remember along the way, I think it was when you did the Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, you really discussed the struggles with anorexia. You don't know when that's going to pop back up and and haunt you. No, no, you don't. And I mean, you know, I was talking to a friend that I'd known since I was two, and she and I were best friends from ages uh, two to 11. And independently, we each, as older teenagers, became anorexic. She said, is that still a problem for you? I said, well, it's not really a problem. There are little things that still live in me that if left unattended could become a problem. I mean, I'm vigilant. I know what I'm made up of and I know what excites me and I know I get a buzz when I'm hungry. I get a buzz when I feel a little lighter. If I didn't have all the knowledge that I have now and the recovery that I have now, I might go after that. And and as you saw in my show, how I went down the scale and I weighed under 85 pounds, you know, and it was never enough. It was never enough. That's a big word, that word enough. When are we enough? You can replace that for people about 
making money or gambling. So it's a transferable issue that human beings are fighting everywhere with alcohol, with drugs, with all kinds of things. It's a blessing when you can identify the signs. If you know you're taking it on the ride and you don't let it get the steering wheel and pull you off the road, that's the real battle is to be able to somehow make the journey with the issues. And allow yourself to go through it. And, you know, one of the big things that I've learned in recovery is the concept of acceptance, just accepting who I am, accepting who other people are. And I don't have to like something to accept it. I just can accept it, you know, because, because I can't force change in, in, in anybody else. I, I can change myself to the degree that I can. And in some ways I can't. And that's acceptable. I think acceptance and forgiveness. And the interesting thing about forgiveness, the learning to forgive yourself for your participation in it seems to be the most complex part of it. Because as long as you're holding that tension towards the other person, you're actually holding it for yourself too. Yes. I mean, you're the, only, you're the one who's suffering. What is it about human beings? Because if you learn to release it, if you learn to release that and say, okay, I love that person and it's who they are, not what they have, whatever that issue is, you're kind of the warden of the prison in a way. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So yeah, and when I hear somebody go, I'll never forgive that person. It's like you, you get stuck in the mud. To what end? You know, like how, how do you win in this, in this scenario? Comedy is a stress reliever. It all looks like fun and games, but comedians also have trauma and they have childhood issues and they have all of those things. Some of it they've learned to laugh at or even capitalize on. I remember watching some early comics, uh, Richard Lewis and some other folks, and I think the neuroses of some of these comedians, and I didn't grow up that way and I didn't have that kind of angst, but I thought I might never be a comic. I don't, I don't have enough of that drama in my life. And it, you know, I chose to look at it differently. And certainly once you become a parent, material is being thrown at you. Changes in your life is really where observation comes from. I, I discovered that along the way. And so I would do anything once or people would go, do you want a horseback ride? I, I think in my head, no, I don't, but I'd like to make jokes about it. So I guess I need to go Try it. Have the experience. So I'll go to a museum. I'll play pitch and putt. I'll scuba dive once. I'll do anything to to feel all the things that as a writer you go, oh, I would never have thought of those sensations or or what my point of view was on it. I yeah, you have to get out and experience stuff or, or else you have nothing to write about. Well, Kathy, you're such a talented person and I'm, I'm so glad that you have weathered through. This is a, a lifetime we've had in the entertainment business, in comedy, in writing, and I wouldn't trade it for anything even though there are highs and lows on this roller coaster. The wisdom you have now is infused in the acting you do and in other things. So it is nice that we can turn to other opportunities like acting and writing and so forth. We are still relevant in some places by having a skill set or a toolkit that can be used in different ways. So, you know, anyway, I salute you and I thank you for spending a little time with us today. Oh, it was great. It was great to talk to you. This was wonderful. Thank you for inviting me. And we'll watch for you on the next Tonight Show, whoever's hosting. Who knows when that's going to be, <laughs> but, but yeah, you keep watching. Okay. <laughs> All right, be well. Take care, Pat. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We know you have many choices in the podcast universe, so we appreciate you investing the time to be part of our creative community. Creativity in Captivity is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas. 
with support from co-producer Tucker Hazel, Boy Genius. This episode was edited by the Right Honorable Tanner Dykstra. Original theme song written and sung by Maya Sharp. Additional support and technical jiggery-pokery provided by Diane Johansson, Delilah Lovejoy, and Tony Deo of Ghost Runner Records. If you are inclined to rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends that need a weekly creative boost, we would be forever grateful. If you'd like to check out our extensive listening library of creative conversations, please visit creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right. I said dot fun. It's like a recess with the fun after the first period. See you next week. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. Your call.